The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. All right. Turn in your copy of God's Word to Exodus 30. That's where we find ourselves this morning in this uh, uh, series that we've entitled God of Glory, working our way passage by passage through uh, this fantastic book. Has anybody learned anything through Exodus thus far? I pray that uh, this morning will be no different. If you're new among us, you can find those messages uh, online, the previous ones there, but uh, don't worry, you can jump right in today and it will uh, hopefully make sense to you as I'll try to give some background and catch you up uh, here in Exodus 30. But uh, we're, when we, uh, we jump into this, but before, before we do, I, I want to just point out something, a way of DNA. At Redemption, we like to say uh, things that an authentic follower of Christ is someone who worships Christ, walks with Christ, and works for Christ, right? If, you're, if Redemption's your church home, have you heard that before? Yeah, hopefully so. You probably uh, maybe even glanced at it at uh, the banner as you came in. Um, if you've taken step two, you know that that is a way that uh, we like to uh, say here uh, about who an authentic follower of the Lord is. And now, this isn't just a, a truth from the, uh, the New Testament, but it's all over the Scriptures, all over your Bible, genuine believers have had lives marked by these three traits of worshiping the Lord, walking with the Lord, and working uh, for Him. It's one of the ways that we know if, if we're saved or somebody else, if these things are, are true of them, if they are worshiping, walking, and working. And uh, what's interesting, uh, these traits now are illustrated in our chapters this morning. As we're coming to the close of the Lord's instructions to Moses, uh, this is on display in these two chapters. Now, you may remember we've been uh, walking through the history of the Israelites from the time that they were enslaved in Egypt. They have now been set free from that bondage and delivered into uh, the presence of the Lord. They're in the wilderness. They're at the base of Mount Sinai. And they have been now uh, set free into the service of the king. And so we as believers, we've now today, as Colossians 1 is, uh, makes clear for us and has been quoted often, we've been set free from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. And so for the Israelites then, Moses has uh, been on the mountain for 40 days with his assistant Joshua, and God is wrapping up those instructions that we've been studying for weeks as God has been laying out the details for how we would be worshipped, how they were to walk with him, how they were to live uh, as a body of believers and work for the Lord. And so we can sum up our chapters this way. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. And it's simply this, the God of glory sets us free and calls us into his service. The God of glory sets us free and calls us into his service. He had set the Israelites apart. He had set them apart and called them and the priests into his service. And church, it's a glorious service. Working for the Lord is a service that uh, is not just for a paycheck. It's not just for our own benefit, but it's a service that really brings us into God's presence. And where God is present, this is where we want to be, right? where he is changing, where, where, where growth is happening, where transformation in, uh, is happening. And as we serve the Lord, this glorious service includes worship. 
worship that we defined uh, uh, recently and here at Redemption as authentic worship is offering all that we are and all that we have in right response to who God is. And that's no less true in the passage this morning. And so when he sets us free, here's our first point. God sets us free and calls us into a service and it's... That's well, not anything new for us, right? If we've been following Christ, we know we are to worship God, the Holy One, and it is the Lord is the only one who is worthy to be praised, right? We've just been singing that over and over in our songs this morning, right? There is one name that is to be praised. There is one name that we lift high, and it is the name of Jesus Christ. It's the name of the Lord. The Lord is the only one worthy of our praise. And this is the starting place of the passage. As the end is coming here, as the uh, instructions are winding down, he leads us to a place we start with worship. And why do we worship? Well, because he is the only one who is worthy, the only one to be sought after. And it's the Israelites, they were to remember this. They were to constantly have this before them in the service here. And so uh, the instructions here, as we get into chapter 30, and I'm going to read them here, in the instructions for the incense altar and this uh, census ransom or contribution, they are, they're, they're placed here and not earlier in the descriptions. Back in chapters 25 and 27, you remember all the details from the tabernacle that were laid out. But the, the, the descriptions for this altar and these uh, pieces here that we're going to look at are left here not because they are just in the section on the blueprints, but because of the purpose and what they point to. And they point us to worship. And so go to your Bible here, Exodus 30. I'm going to read just a little bit of a section and I'll make some comments as we go. Okay, have your Bibles open? You there? You ready? Follow along. I'm going to read chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense, and you shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, and a cubit its breadth. Now, note this. A cubit is, generally speaking, 18 inches. So as you, some of you all have like calculators in your mind, you're putting that all together, aren't you? It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be a testimony in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Now, this is God's word for God's people. Now, take note of some of these things here as you just kind of get our mind wrapped around the, the passage here. This altar was very similar to the uh, altar of sacrifice. It's a little bit smaller in, uh, in, in its construction, but the same made of acacia wood, uh, overlaid in gold, and, uh, and, and having these horns on the sides. Now, it had these rings under it to put the poles through it because it was not to be touched. It was not to be defiled or profaned by human touch, but the poles would go through it if in the event it needed to be moved while they were transporting it from a camping spot to camping spot. The location that it was to be was there inside. If you remember the construction of the, of, of the tabernacle and all of its places, there was the outer courts, and then on the inside was the tabernacle. 
And uh, the inner part separated by a veil was where the Holy of Holies or the Ark of the Covenant lived there where the presence of God was. And in the outer area was where the lampstand and then the bread of the presence was. And also now here we find this, this altar of incense that was to be in the place. And they were, we'll learn here in just a, a little bit as we keep going as to the type of incense that could be burned on there for a no unauthorized. You couldn't just go in and put, well, I think this smells good today. What do I want to burn? And go and put uh, you know, any sort of fragrance or things to be burned uh, on this altar for uh, the Lord would prescribe what would be burned on there. Now, uh, like I mentioned last week, Aaron, he's the high priest, his two sons, Nadab and remember the, his, the other son's name? Abihu. No, we don't need to name our son that, Aaron. Nadab and, and Abihu. Uh, they would actually, for this very, a violation of this law was what the Lord would put them to death in Leviticus chapter 10. For they offered an unauthorized of that sacrifice would be uh, 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 sprinkled on this altar here. And so here are all the details. But what are we to make of this altar? What are we, what's up with this incense that is to be burned? Now, some traditions uh, still employ this, don't they? Ever been in a church where incense is burning in the worship area? Maybe we should have some and add some like smoke to uh, uh, and some fragrance here. One of the most uh, overpowering aromatic experiences I have ever uh, experienced was actually in Israel back in 2007 when I, I went there. And you can go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre now where Christ was uh, buried, his tomb there. They've now built this uh, very ornate uh, uh, you know, temple or church building around it. And each kind of corner here is occupied by various uh, Orthodox uh, Christian uh, sects like um, the, the Greek Orthodox, and there's, there's all kinds there. But these are all very traditional uh, groups, and they all burn incense. And they all seem to be burning different incense at different times. And so if you have an overly sensitive nose, it, it, it can be very overpowering. And now they have different times where they come and they, they have their services and they work it all out uh, uh, peacefully, at least typically peacefully. But man, when you walk into this old building with very poor ventilation, lots of people, it's warm in there. It is something to behold. But how does all this relate to worship? How, how does incense, uh, like I said, our, the call here this morning as we serve the Lord, he sets us apart to worship the Holy One. How does this all relate? Well, the smoke of the incense is symbolic of our prayers. It's symbolic of the prayers Aaron and the priests, these morning and evening prayers as they would come before the Lord was a, was a sign or a symbol of our prayers to the Lord. Here with Psalm 141, as it likens here a prayer to this incense, he says, O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. See, our worship is one of prayers. God is calling the people of Israel in the same way that he would call us to pray to him regularly, to call on him in prayer, seek like our heart ever desired. But we come to the Lord. We seek him in prayer. We seek him to commune with him, not to get things, but to get God, to be in his presence, this relationship with him that he will meet with us and we with him, which is the very uh, promise here of verse 6. It's to be placed there at the front of the mercy seat above the testimony where I will meet with you. 
See, we don't have incense anymore. There's no tabernacle. Now we can meet, we can call upon the Lord. We can offer our prayers to him wherever we go, whenever we want. And isn't that awesome, church? Praise the Lord that we have this, uh, this unhindered access. But here, here's the thing. Let not the accessibility of the Lord keep us from prioritizing prayer. Sometimes when we know we have access all the time, we can neglect it. Like, oh, I can get to that later. We, well, I, I'll just come back. I'll, I'll pray when I'm done with this. And next thing we know, the whole afternoon's gone by and, and we have no time or we're rushing on to the next thing. But now as much as any day, we must prioritize this. We must make our prayers. We must be a people of unceasing prayer before the Lord, worshiping the Holy One who has set us free and set us apart into His service. But the worship doesn't just stop at prayers. Let's go on here to verse 11. Follow along. I want to just keep reading and we'll make some comments here. As we go, the census tax here in verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give it this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. Now, what's up with this contribution? What's up with this ransom here? What's up with happening here? Well, see, everybody's contribution, all of the people itself and for the provision of the priests. And so the point in this in our worship, the point in the giving is not in the amount, but that everybody contributes. You see that? It doesn't matter what, if you're rich or poor or how much you had, it's just that everybody contributes and that it is an act of worship. Worship through remembering what the Holy One has done, uh, how He has ransomed us into this freedom, how God had set them free. And so they were to remember back on what happened on the exodus of when they were set free, remembering the Holy One, who He is and what He had done to deliver them and then to meet with them. Now, this is uh, what has happened at the census and the time. Now, you can go actually and read in 2 Samuel 24. And guess what? David violates this law. You know that? He, violates, he takes a census and, and, and it's, it's not great. And go read about it in 2 Samuel 24 this afternoon. But what, was, what is happening here? It is the Lord calling people to give in their worship. And there's some bad thinking when it comes to our giving, isn't there? There's bad thinking in our own heart. There's bad thinking that exists around us here. Sometimes we think of giving like it's a toll. Like it's something that we have to do. If we're going to drive on this road, if we're going to follow Christ, then it's just this obligatory fee that we have to pay in order to follow Christ, right? But it's not. It's not a toll, nor is giving to the Lord a tip. You know, like we're tipping him. Yeah, the service was pretty good. Thanks, Lord. I had a pretty good week. I think I should, you know, give you 20 bucks for this. You know, great. You've met my needs. And so, you know what? I will give a tip to the Lord. And though you probably have a header there in the census tax, giving is also not a tax that's like imposed by the authorities. It's like membership dues. 
no church, note this, make no mistake, settle this in your own heart and mind that our giving to the Lord is first and foremost and always an act of worship. It's, it's our joy to remember to give back the one who, uh, who, who set us free. For the Israelites, it was their annual reminder of what God had done to set them free and to deliver them. And in the same way, as we give to the Lord week after week, we say paycheck after paycheck that God, this money is from you. And it is back to you any happiness that I think I might purchase with this. It is how we say paycheck after paycheck that God, the gospel is my greatest treasure. It's how we say, God, God, I, I have complete trust in you to provide what I need. It is how we say week after week that Jesus, I am committed to your great commission for the advancement of the gospel, the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, that disciples would be made and matured and multiplied through this church, through this body that we are a part of through to the end of the earth. And this is why we give. This is why it's an act of worship. This is why we come to worship the Holy One, where the goal and the focus isn't on the amount, where the focus isn't just on how much do we give, and it's not just some socialistic uh, 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 society or club here where we just all offer the same amount. But as we come to the New Testament, God would come to call to us to our heart to give faithfully, cheerfully, honestly, and generously all for the work of the percent is, is, man, you can still live comfortably, and it might even be beyond that. But the heart in worship is that we, that we feel it, that we're giving to the Lord regularly, consistently, cheerfully. Why? Through a heart of worship to see the Holy One remembered and, and, and this gospel to go forward. See, the two most impactful resources that God has given us for His worship is our prayers and our money. God moves as we get on our knees and as we pray. He is worshiped and honored and on the move as we pray, responding to uh, the prayers, the pleas of His people. And as we put our money there to see that that is happening, to equip and to mobilize the work of the ministry to go forward. And this is the heart here. This is what, as the instructions come down, uh, as uh, they're winding down here, as they're to build this altar, as they're to take this collection, it is also that the one who is worthy receives the praise that is due to him. But see, the instructions continue. It's not only about our worshiping the Holy One, but also about walking in holiness. Do you see this here in the next section? Well, let's look at it so that you do. Because we're told to walk in holiness. The Israelites, they had some rituals. The, the priests, they had some rituals then to go through to cleanse themselves before they would serve. And so join me in verse 17. Let's just keep reading. It says, The Lord said to Moses, You shall make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. And so where's the location here? It's Well, it's out in that courtyard. It's out, outside, it's between the altar and between the inner, uh, or the tabernacle where they would go. It was out in the open there. Verse 19, with which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting and when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. Now, what's up with this washing here? 
What's up with this sink? Well, in order to approach the holy one, the priests had to be holy. In order to approach the pure one, the priests had to be pure. Any impurity on the hands that they would serve with or the feet that would carry them there, and they would die. We're warned of it twice here in verse 20 and in 21. And scholars have rightly pointed out the reasons for this, uh, even before the science was known there, right? The washings, the rituals that were not only here, but that would come throughout the law were to, you know, to rid them of the impurities and the disease and things that exist when our hands are dirty. And in that, you see the kindness of God, right? Before the scientific advancement, you see God's kindness to his people to lay these things out to, uh, to keep them healthy. But it also gives us a glimpse here into his wisdom. See, beyond just the scientific reasons for washing dirt off, for being clean and hygienic, it is a spiritual picture. See, dirt is a fantastic picture of our impurities, of our sin. The New American Commentary, he's very helpful, had for them its greatest value in teaching them the importance of purity. Dirt represents a visible indication of adulteration of a clean thing. Dirt and food mars the taste. And makes it pretty bad to chew on, right? Dirt and clothing changes both the appearance and potentially even the comfort of the clothing. Dirt looks bad, wrong, or out of place on any surface where it does not normally belong. And most people regard the feel of dirt when there is enough of it to feel as objectionable. From this common sense about dirt, God taught his people. Through these commands that related directly to the priests who served in the tabernacle and or its courtyard, that this whole, uh, his holiness demands purity. Things and people brought close to his presence could not be sloppy imperfect, common, adulterated, or otherwise dirty. Accordingly, the hands that touched the sacrifices or the feet that walked into the tabernacle had to be washed to remove dirt and to make the priests of Yahweh symbolically pure before him so as to be able to serve worthily in his house. End quote. Now, to put this into you know, some modern context, imagine a, a, a pastor showing up to, a, a, to officiate a wedding, and he's all sweaty and dirty because he had spent the day in his garden. Or imagine uh, sh showing up to surgery, and a doctor's there, and he's filthy with the grease from working on his truck and doesn't even bother to scrub in, let alone wash his hands. Now, in both of those uh, scenarios, it would be inappropriate and impure. What would you tell the doctor? What would you tell the, the pastor before uh, going to the wedding or before laying on that table? Wash up, right? Go take a shower. Go scrub and do something. And so, too, is our filth. The picture is here. When we are walking with God, the sin should make us feel uncomfortable, especially as we come near to Christ and we walk with him and the light of Christ is shown upon us. But it doesn't just end simply with the removal of dirt, but also the putting on of something fragrant, which is where the instructions here come. As he talks uh, and gives these instructions here, the Lord to Moses about how to walk in holiness, they first must remove the impurity of the dirt, but then also add something, put on this fragrant oil and burn this incense. Now look here in verse 22. Let's just keep on reading. The Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels and of sweet 
sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. Now, that probably doesn't make sense to most of us. Some of y'all that are into like uh, the essential oils and all that, you probably know exactly what this all means, right? And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the table, and all its utensils, and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, and they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people." And the Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stack to an anica and it's a tongue twister here, galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense of each there shall be an equal part and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourself. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. So what's up with all this oil and incense? Well, let me just point out here that even though I made a joke about the oils and the, all that and the essential oils, there's nothing magical in it. They're just set apart ingredients. As they would go on, there'd be other oils that they would use for uh, medicinal purposes, for uh, food purposes, or even just for fragrance purposes. These were to be set apart as holy, where the smell would, uh, would, would or at least should trigger a readiness to walk before the Lord. As they would uh, anoint and put this oil on all the, uh, the utensils, all the furniture, everything in the tabernacle, and all the priests who would serve in it. It was to be a trigger, an aromatic trigger for them to remember that walking before God is to be done in holiness. See, coming before the Lord, serving Him in holiness with, with God is really a gift from God. This is the truth here. See, we can, we can mistake this and read these things and see, like, oh, we'll, uh, we have to clean ourselves up before we can come to the Lord. The reality is, is that the Lord first makes us clean. The Lord first saves us. And then we would continue to walk in that holiness, living out an eternal reality that God has already done in us. See, it is Jesus that makes us clean, church. We don't earn it. We don't do this on our own. We don't come and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We don't uh, go and, and, and get rid of sin on our own and then say, hey, now, God, now you can accept me. Now the Lord takes us in our filth. The Lord takes us in our sinfulness and he extends to us the mercy that we sang about this morning. See, we recognize that it is God is holy and our sin is what separates us from the Lord and apart from the Lord, we can't do anything, let alone come to him, let alone serve us and he must first set us free and then he calls us into his service and a service where we walk in this holiness. 
And so we must come to Christ, confessing our sin, bringing it to him, and then he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, it is the Lord that makes it happen, and he gives the grace by his spirit to then keep walking all of this out. Now, isn't this a, a glorious truth, church? Isn't this a confidence? You may know this verse here, but just listen to this, Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now, isn't this awesome here as we think about the confidence that we who trust Christ now have to enter in? It is a confidence that they can come. There's no fear and trepidation. Imagine the 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 the. Uh, the how they were so worried about their death, paying attention to detail that they were worried that, man, if I don't get this right, I'm I'm, going to be killed. And now we who trust Christ can come in confidently, not because of what we've done, not because of the animal's blood that was shed, but because of our of the blood of Jesus Christ. It says, by the new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us then draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Church, why can we approach the Lord? Why can we come into his service? Why can we worship? How, why can we walk with the Lord now? Because of Christ because of what Christ has done for us. And so as we turn from our sins, see walking is a movement towards something and away from something simultaneously. And so we are leaving our sin and headed towards Christ where Christ has washed the dirt of the past from us and we come in repentance and he's ready to wash the sins of our presence. And so then as we walk, as we worship him, we are also set apart for a more excellent service. See, as we come into chapter 31 here, now this, it is beginning to round itself out. Those who follow the Lord worship Him, walk with Him, and also work for Him. And so here's our next point. We are to work with excellence. To work with excellence. Now that the plans and the purposes are laid out, the Lord tells Moses about the people that will do all the work to make the tabernacle and its furniture and the priestly garments. And so all that's been described from chapters 25 to uh, chapter 30 here, now God is saying he's laid out the plans, he's laid out the purpose, and he says these are the men, the people that will do the work. And so join me in 31. I'm just going to read the first 11 verses. They say this, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all the men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests." and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. Now that's quite a list, isn't it? 
It sounds like a punch list for when you're building a, a home or you're building out a, a church building, right? Here's the whole list of things that have to be done. But church, have you ever watched a craftsman at his or her trade? Have you ever watched a, you know, been in the shop of a carpenter where once there was just a, a pile of wood then becomes a rocking chair? Have you ever, have you ever sat in the shop of a glass blower? where there was just like this sand and these materials, and now it's like this iridescent dolphin that's on a stand with a, you know, spouting water in room. Well, there's skeins of, of yarn and rolls of fabric everywhere, and all of this then one day turned into this massive wall tapestry of a stream in a desert. My wife is a craftswoman, and that was a piece. It was a piece created for a prayer room. The skill given by the Spirit. A craftsman at their work should cause us to, uh, to, to worship and to even employ our own skill to the work of the Lord. These skills that are given by the Spirit. And sometimes it's confusing what this means, right? Do you see it here? He says he's describing the people. He's saying, I've filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. And so that, that may sound maybe odd to you. Maybe you've been confused on it in the past. What does this even mean? Well, again, the New American Commentary has a helpful definition, I think. To be filled with the Spirit is simply having from God the ability to do or say exactly what God wants done or said. And so God has been in the business ever since the beginning of equipping His people with, for the work of the ministry, of giving them the skill and the things to, necessary to make it happen. We saw this on display as we moved into this building, didn't we, church? Those of you that were here when we did this, God brought the right people with the right skills from architects and carpenters and painters and all the, the, the right skills to make this happen. And the coolest part was He made it happen in 11 days. From the time we got our building permit to the time we got our occupancy, this place was uh, completed. Each person of our church contributing their portion, their skill, and their prayers. And you know what? This is still a testimony to the work of God among us. Just this last week, our landlord brought it up with me again. As you've seen, if you've been coming for any length of time, how long it's been take, take the, the businesses to build out in front of us. And this isn't a detriment against anybody or any, it's just say anything poorly of anybody else. But it is to show the, the, the glory of our God in getting things done. Eleven days, y'all, so that he would be worshipped. And see, the work hasn't stopped for us just because we got into a building. It hasn't stopped because the mission hasn't stopped. Because Christ is still to be worshipped. And until Jesus calls us home and he redeploys us in heaven to worship him there and to walk with him there and to work for him there, then we keep on serving him with excellence even here, giving it all to him and then leaving it in his hands, resting in his uh, sovereign control. See, we can work for the Lord. We can give it all to him. We can leave it all in his hands. Why? Because of this final point because we can rest and be refreshed in the Lord. God calls them to worship. He calls them to walk. He calls them to work. But then the, fitting, the end is so fitting, so appropriate here in verse 12. This instructions conclude. Look at this here, 31 verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you.
You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Oh, this is God's word for God's people. How appropriate that the Lord's instructions would end on this note. We give it all, we work it for, for the Lord, and then we leave it in his hands. It could overwhelm Moses and the Israelites to hear all of these instructions, not just what we've heard today, but what we have heard throughout the last several weeks. It would be overwhelming to them. But in a way that only God could do, he reminds them as he set on display his eternal wisdom at creation where God would make the earth in six days and then rest. Israel would make the tabernacle and then they were to rest as well. And this would then be a, 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 a principle for us as we serve the Lord. We give all that we have to the Lord and then we rest in his finished work. And then we're refreshed by his finished word. We're rest and refreshed that Jesus won our salvation. That we're not earning it, we're not working it, we're not even working to keep at it. We are rest and refreshed that Jesus will save his children. He will call his children to himself. The person you love, the person that you long to know Christ. You don't have to have the magic words. You, don't, you can't mess up the magic words. You just have to be faithful living the life, sharing the gospel, sharing the hope that you have, and then leaving the results resting in his work. You can rest and be refreshed that Jesus will accomplish his mission in your life. As you are devoted to the great commission, the Lord is with you and he will do the work. He builds the church. The Spirit will give the gifts. God will orchestrate all the details according to his events so that all work together for our good. See, we just love the Lord. We love Him, and then we steward the resources that He gives us. This, this is what is true. God gives the, us our time, and he, we just steward it. God gives us our talent, and we just steward it. God gives us our treasure, and we just steward it, remembering that it is God who will be glorified. It is God who gives it, and it is God who is with us all throughout it. And remembering this allows us to then work hard for the Lord and rest hard in the Lord and be refreshed fully in the Lord as well. See, as those who've been set free from our sin, have you, church? You've been set free from your sin? Then let us fully, let us live fully in service of Christ, worshiping Him, walking with Him, working for Him, and resting in Him, and all the more as we see the day drawing.